Thank you for downloading Paragon Church's Sunday Sermon from March 31st. Questions Jesus asked? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. I really want you to think about that today with faith. Faith in action. Faith being put to the test. And I'd like to say, like I said, that I have faith like that, but I struggle in myself. I struggle in myself to put that faith into action far more than I like to admit. I have faith in Jesus. I have faith that he can do it. But how often do I question whether or not he'll do it this time? How often do I question who he is? How often do I question what he's done? And, you know, I like to say that I do it pretty well. And I may think I do, and I might even make other people think that I do. But the reality versus the perception can always be different. And I began to look at that this week, and I started thinking about reality. It stings a little bit. We can have a perception of what we think we do and what we think we are and who we think we are, but then reality sets in and it kind of stings a little bit. I had reality set in for me just a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, I, I took Camden on his senior trip to Phoenix to watch a NASCAR race. And uh, we were gone for the, the weekend, and the first reality that set in for me that stung just a little bit is that I have a senior graduating college in less than six, or graduating high school in less than six weeks. And that, that kind of blew my mind, because you know what? I'm not that old. Um, and then I realized perception is I'm not that old. Reality is, is I am that old. And on that trip, while we were at that NASCAR race, I began to also realize that we're sitting there, and these cars are making all kinds of noise, just going around in a loop. And every time they go by, people are like, hey, you have your hearing protection in? I'm like, I don't need hearing protection, because I can't hear anyway. Why? Because the reality is, I am that old. And then, as we were driving, we were flipping around stations, and I grew up in Phoenix, so growing up in Phoenix, you kind of remember all the radio stations, remember all the TV stations? Well, one of the radio stations came up was 94.5, and if uh, some of you actually are in here from Phoenix, and you remember 94.5 was the classic rock station. It was like your classic oldies, and we were listening to it, but they were playing 80s and 90s music. And I started going, well, obviously they've changed formats, because this isn't classic music. And then I realized 80s music is 30 years old. So when I was listening to that station in the 80s, that they were playing music from the 60s, it wasn't even as old as the 80s music I'm listening to now. And I went, man, I really am that old. Perception, reality. And when reality hits you, you kind of go, oh, man. Here's another crazy thing. This Thursday, we'll be nine years old as a church. Nine years old as a church. We were just talking, Corey and I were just talking about when it seems like seriously just yesterday, we were unloading the big, huge trailer at Sandia Vista Elementary School and trying to figure out what we were doing and why we were doing it. And nine years later, here we are. We went from Sandia Vista to Cleveland to that little place over there on Northern to this, and we're like, what is God going to do next? And, and nine years, I mean, nine years means that my little girl, Maylee, was only a year and a half old. She doesn't know anything but this church. That blows my mind. And, and it's that constant reminder of, man, life moves pretty fast. I mean, Ferris Bueller said it great at the end of the movie, didn't he? Life moves pretty fast. If you don't slow down every once in a while and take a look around, you might just miss it. And I feel like it just keeps going and keeps going, and I marvel at the stats that say that I'm over half of my life done. 
I mean, if a, a, a man is supposed to die at 76 and I'm 43, mathematically speaking, I'm over half done. And then you start going, oh, well, if I'm half done, what have I done with the first half? And you start going through all the processes in your mind. You start going through all the things of, you know, how much time have I invested in things that matter? How much time have I invested in things that don't? How, how much time ha- have, of my life have I really, truly lived Versus just coasted. Then they have to start thinking that, that I've been a Christian for over 30 years. And in those 30 years, this, this is the, the hardest question I think that I had to answer when, when I started doing all this inventory. And of course, when you're driving on the road between Flagstaff and here, there's nothing but thinking to do. Uh, or you can listen to Navajo Radio, one of the two. And, and so um, I started thinking and I started going through all the processes in my mind as I was going through it all. I said, you know what? In 30 years as a Christian, how much difference has it made in this world? How much difference has it made? Because I wasn't saved just for me. How much difference have I made? All that God has done in me, all that God has done through me, all that God has done in spite of me, was it just for my benefit? You want another reality check? We're going through the adoption process. Many of you guys know that. But in the adoption process, there's this thing called a home study. And maybe if you've gone through that or done foster care or something like that, you've gone through the home study. Well, what a home study basically does is this, is they take your entire life and they tear it apart. And they dig out of every little crevice to figure out what is wrong with you. Because they want to make sure that you're at least semi-normal to have a child in your house. And so this lady comes over to her house and she has three two-hour sessions that she's got to sit there. And she sits down with me and she goes, okay, tell me your story. And, and I begin to tell my story, and, and the, the highlighted points of some of the big stuff, my parents got divorced when I was nine. My stepdad was killed when I was 17. Uh, my two grandfathers died within a couple of years of that, uh, of cancer. Because of the result of my stepfather dying when I was 17, my mom went into a mental institution. Um, but when my mom came out, she definitely wasn't normal, uh, but there was all kinds of issues that kind of fell in line with that. I've had cancer twice. We've, we've struggled with infertility. All of these things, I sit down, and so the lady sits down with me and she she goes so let me get this straight and she starts going through each step along the way and I'm like "Mm mm-hmm yes yes and she goes I only have one question for you she goes how are you normal and of course Christy laughed because she's like normal's really kind of a you know (laughs) relative term here how are you normal was the question that she asked me and and I have no answer but God. I have no answer but God. How am I normal? How am I doing what I'm doing? Why didn't I turn to drugs? Why didn't I turn to alcohol? Why didn't I turn to all of the things the world has to offer to try and cope with all kinds of junk that happens in our lives? How am I normal? And you know what she told me? I can't write that. I can't write that. And I said, well, then you're going to have to make something up because that's all I've got. It's, it's because of who God is and what he's doing and the things that he's doing in my life. And, and with that, as I look back, I said, what kind of fruit, what kind of fruit is displayed in my life because of it? And, and what fruit have I been able to bear because I've been in Christ and rooted in him and grown up in him? What fruit is bearing other fruit now? Because that's the whole idea of discipleship. That's the whole idea of the command. How, how obedient have I been to that command that, that Jerome mentioned in Matthew 28 when he was reading the scripture when it says, go and make disciples, teach them, baptize them, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. 
He doesn't make that a suggestion. That's a command. How, have, how obedient have I been? And that word obedient, oh, that's a tough word. Obedience. That, that's not what I want to hear. And, and, you know, how obedient have I been in trusting him? Going back to the idea of faith. How obedient have I been in submitting to his will? You know, Jerome opened up the, the service by reading the Lord's Prayer, which is, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, not mine. How submissive have I been to that? Obedience and submission. Not words that are popular in today's culture, is it? But yet that's what we're asked of by Christ. And how much and how well have I been with that? You know, even as we've looked at that a couple of weeks ago, how good have I been at loving my neighbor? Because who's my neighbor? How good have I been loving God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength? How well have I done that? How obedient, how submissive have I been? How many times do I get in the way? That's a real difficult question to answer. But here's an even more difficult one that I think it all stems from. And we've been going through these questions that Jesus asked. And today will be probably the most difficult question that Jesus asked. At least in my own mind, I think this is the case. And it's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, as Jesus wraps up what's called the Sermon on the Plain. And Luke chapter 6, verse 46, says these words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? This question comes at the end, like I said, of the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Sermon on the Plain is kind of thought to be either a same version, but Luke's version of Sermon on the Mount, or it is a very specific teaching that he taught two different times. I believe the second But even in it, he wraps up Matthew chapter 7, where you find the end of the Sermon on the Mount saying something similar, less of a question, but more of a statement. Well, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And and see, what we have to understand is who is he talking to in this moment? He's talking to really three groups of people. As he gave the Sermon on the Mount and he gave the Sermon on the Plain, there was three groups of people. One, there was this legit followers. The, the people who were legitimately following him and wanting to grow closer to him. Second, there was the people that were just looking for a miracle. They are just looking for what he could do for them and how he could do it and how they could be impressed and how they could be entertained. And then there was a third group that was the Pharisees, the religious people that just wanted to see him trip up and fall. So he's asking these three groups of people, and maybe you fall in one of those three groups of people today, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? And the crazy thing as we look at that, because I think we have to really break down why he even say that to begin with. Because I think we've watered down the term Lord when we say, oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord. Oh, we've, we've lessened what Lord actually means. See, if you go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a secular translation, not some biblical dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, let me tell you what the definition of Lord actually is. Here it is. One having power and authority over others. A ruler by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due. That's the first thing they write down. You know what the second thing they write down is? Jesus. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Who's Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord, even according to the dictionary. So what does that mean? Well, go back to definition number one. 
means he has power and authority over others, a ruler by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you are not serving me and you are not obedient to me? That is a tough question to ask and an even tougher one to answer. A tough one in all of that. And I look at that and I say, you know, there's even a bigger part of this than just him saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Because he actually is saying even more so here, when he says the word Lord twice, it's actually a Hebrew uh, emphasis on a great relationship, a loving relationship, a caring relationship. You'll see it throughout the Old Testament when he talks to Moses. When God talks to Moses, he says, Moses, Moses. When he talks to Abraham, he says, Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, 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 Samuel. Jesus does it with Martha when she's all bent out of shape. Martha, Martha. It's a term of endearment. He does it with Simon Peter. He does it with Saul, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? You see it over and over and over again with this idea of this great relationship. And he also says it from the cross, which we'll talk about on Good Friday night. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are real deep things. So when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what, you, do what I say? He says, don't pretend to have a deep relationship with me, and then don't obey me. Ouch. Does anybody else feel a little bit of a sting with that one? That perception that, oh, yeah, I call Jesus Lord, but guess what? I don't live like it. My mouth does not match up to my actions. Ouch. That sting of reality. Don't call me Lord if you aren't going to act like I'm your Lord. Why would you call me Lord if I'm not actually who the definition of Lord is? Why, why would we do that? Is there a difference between my lips saying Lord, Lord, and my lifestyle saying I'm Lord? Those are really hard ones. And I think, I think we have to understand this. Because sometimes we can see these these words, and immediately we jump to this word called legalism. Well, these are all the things I have to do. Can I tell you that, that this is not about legalism at all? This is not about legalism at all because legalism says I must obey in order to be saved. Grace and love says I must obey because I'm saved. Because I did make Jesus the Lord of my life. I did step down off of that throne. Do I think I'm saved because I know a lot about Jesus and I know a lot about salvation? Or am I saved because Jesus came into my life? He, the prayer that I prayed was, God, I can't do this on my own. I cannot save myself. I give my hope and I give my trust to your son, Jesus. And I will trust in him to be my Lord. I will trust in him to be my Savior. And when I shift that trust from myself to him, it changes everything. See, it's going to lead to a new heart. And that new heart is going to lead to new actions. And it's going to lead to right actions. We don't do it to impress God. We do it because God's already impressed us. His love compels us. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that, starting in verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should, guess what? 
no longer live for themselves, should no longer be the lords of their own lives, but instead live for the one who died for them and was raised. See, this message today is about responding to Jesus as Lord, to responding to him as master. When we think of the term master, what's the obvious submissive part of the master relationship? There's got to be a slave. How many times have you ever seen the slave tell the master what to do? How many times have you seen a slave say, you know what, this is the way it's going to happen around here, master? It doesn't. At least not in any thing I've ever seen other than in the church. That's the only place it happens at. For whatever reason, it, it happens here. And, and you know, I've told you I like sports illustrations. I've been watching March Madness. I don't know if you have or not. But there has not been a single time that I can think when they do the huddle and the camera comes over the top of the huddle and the coach has the whiteboard and says, this is what you're going to do, this is what you're going to do, and this is what you're going to do when somebody says, no, coach, let me take that whiteboard from you. This is what we're going to do. doesn't happen. Because in a coach relationship and a player relationship, the coach is being submitted to by the player. Maybe you don't like sports. Think about it this way. You have a boss at work. You have a teacher. Anytime you go into your boss and your boss is like, this is what I need you to do this week, and you're like, you know what? No. You could be right. You will not be doing that that week, but you will also not get a paycheck at the end of that week as well. Because we have this weird tendency to think that somehow in the church it's different than these other relationships. Jerome pointed out when he read Ephesians chapter 5. Because the best illustration is the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship. It says that we are the bride of Christ. That we are coming in to this relationship with him. Do you understand what marriage is? I know that society has really, really watered down what marriage is. But marriage is a covenantal relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. It's a commitment that we come together in such a way. I mean, it's no longer about dating anymore. You know what the difference is between dating and marriage? I hope you do. Because in dating, you can get out anytime you want. And it's all about you. Hey, where are we going on a date tonight? Well, I was thinking, you know, it's this whole all about me thing. But when you shift and all of a sudden your life becomes one with the other, when you are no longer self-absorbed, well, I shouldn't say that. You are not supposed to be as self-absorbed, and you're supposed to think about the other person more. It should change the way the relationship happens. You're going to want to do the things that your wife or husband wants to do. You're going to work together. You're going to do these things. And guess what? In that commitment, you're not going to say, well, I don't really like the way you're doing it, so I'm going to go find somebody else. Because that's what the dating relationship can do. And so when we look at this, we have to see that we are to respond to Jesus in such a way that we are in this marriage relationship, and that it's no longer about us. The funny thing is I read this article this week from DesiringGod.org. And it actually, the, the title of the article that, that grabbed my attention was Seven Ways to Ruin Your Life in Your 20s. And I'm like, well, I'm well past that, so I'm going to go ahead and read this and, and see if I can help out those who are in their 20s. And, and this is what it said, Seven Ways to Ruin Your Life in Your 20s. Number one, do what you want. Number two, live beyond your means. Number three, feed an addiction. Number four, run with fools. Number five, believe your life is all about you. Number six, live for immediate gratification. And number seven, avoid accountability. Those are the seven ways that this article says to ruin your life. The funny thing is, is I put a question mark at the end of that. Those are supposed to ruin your life? Because that's pretty much what the world tells you to do every day. 
every day. And it doesn't have to just be in your 20s. It's also your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s, your 100s. It doesn't matter. That's what we're trying to be told to do. Avoid accountability. Live for immediate gratification. Believe your life is all about you. That's where we're pointed at. These things are pounded into our head daily by society and even by the church that this somehow is all about you. I laugh because I think of Finding Nemo when I think of these things. I'm not sure if you remember Finding Nemo, but all the seagulls that went after the fish, what do they say? Mine, mine, mine. All of you guys have seen it. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That that is the world that we live in. Mine, 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 mine. It's just all about me. And that is what's pounded into me. It's about comfort and it's about convenience. It's not about obedience and submission. It's not about obedience and submission. Instead, it's about comfort and convenience. And let's be honest, we like our comforts and our conveniences, don't we? How many of you guys still have a car that has windows that roll with a crank? Good. Good for you. I'm proud of you guys. That is good because they're a whole lot easier to fix than the other ones. I'll tell you that right now. But the reality is, is that those things slowly made their way to be normal, not just comforts. I remember my grandfather drove a 1977 Volvo, and it had power windows, and I thought it was the coolest thing, because it was like the only car I had ever seen with them. Now, it's pretty standard, and that seems to be the case so many times with so many things, that we like our comforts, and we like our conveniences, and guess what? They're not bad things. The problem is, is when they become a God thing, we said this before, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's when it becomes a bad thing. And it's what we worship instead of God. We want the easy things. We want our lives and our independence and our will and our way to go the way we want it. And comfort and convenience, they feed that. They feed that. And without those little things, man, then we have some desperate needs, don't we? We're kind of without that comfort, without that convenience, we, we, we struggle a little bit more. But here's what I, I think. Without real need, there's little dependence for God. There's little need to be in a relationship with Him if we can do it all by ourselves, or at least we think we can do it all by ourselves. We're bent on selfishness, and we have been since the fall. We're bent on selfishness, and we have been since the fall. Do you know what the first thing that we were questioning is, is God really who He thinks He is? When we went back to the questions that we wrote out back in February, I'm not sure if you remember those, the question that came out that we talked about, is God real? One of the ones we didn't talk about was, is the Bible real? Because that was a question that came out. And I truly, 100% believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And it tells us what to do. You know why I think we want to question why it's real? Because we don't want to do what it says. Because if it doesn't exactly fall real, then I can do a little spiritual buffet and I can take this and I can take this and I can take this and I can leave the broccoli alone. The stuff I don't like, we're just not going to touch it. And so instead of going, you know what, we need to try and prove if God's word is true, I think we, we need to go out of our way to see if we can prove it's false. See if his promises don't come true. See if those things aren't there. Do we really need to do what he said? Is obedience optional in the Christian life? Is obedience optional in the Christian life? Let's be honest. The real reason we have to even ask that is because we don't want 
to obey. Did God really say? Did God really say? How do we take the steps to do that? And what I would love for you to do, we're talking about the question of why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? We're actually going to focus more on the same basic teaching from Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 21 through 27. And it is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end when he tells how life is supposed to be lived, how we're supposed to live it, all of these things in all of that. And, and as we begin to look at it, one of the things that Jesus tells us is, is don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. He says, it's not just enough to say the right words. You have to do what God wants. It's not just enough to hear what God says or what Jesus says. We have to, to, to put them into practice. So what I'd love for you to do is pick up in verse 21 of Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 7, and it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody who has a relationship, a, a, a close, what they say, what their perception says is a close relationship, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That is a tough statement. Not as tough, I think, as a question, because the question makes you think about it. This is just a straight out, hey, it's not going to happen for everybody. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in their name? And he says, you know what? I will announce to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. That relationship, that marriage relationship, it's about a relationship. I didn't know who you are. You might think in your perception, Lord, Lord, but when you only want to get together with your wife on a Sunday morning for an hour, once a month, that's not going to do well for your relationship. If she says, hey, I want to talk, and you're like, let me check my schedule and see if there's anything that's less important that I can give up. That is not going to go well in a real marriage relationship, and guess what? It's not going to go real well in a Jesus relationship either. And so he says here, depart from me, you law breakers. He says, I need to be in an active relationship and not just talk about a relationship. We need to not just say it, but do it. See, being a Christian is far more than just saying the right words. And I know this is one of those ones where people are like, okay, here's that legalism thing. Please, once again, understand the relationship picture here and what a relationship should look like. Being a Christian is more than just saying the right words. It's actually even more than just a profession of faith. And I know, I know that's one of the hard pills to swallow. Because I can say in my mouth that Jesus is Lord and profess that faith, but if my actions never do anything, what's it going to change? If I said this stool right here is something that I can sit on and I trust it and I fully believe it's going to hold my weight, what's it matter before I sit down on it? And, and I'm not sure about that stool, by the way. I have no actual idea. I've never tried to sit on it. I've never been real comfortable with those ones that have a little screw on the bottom that I could easily break. But, but here's the thing. It, it comes down to it's more than a profession of faith. Even if we think we're sincere about it, it's more than words, it's actions. We're transformed by Jesus to do God's will. And here's the thing. Just before this passage, Jesus actually talks about false prophets and bad fruit. 
false prophets and bad fruits, is this how you're going to know whether or not somebody is somebody you can trust in? If there is a good fruit, that means it's coming from a good tree because bad fruit doesn't come from a good tree and vice versa. Good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. And he's trying to lay that out there. Now he's saying, you have to look at it yourself. We can't just say it. We have to do it. Now, I've said all that, and I have to clarify this because I don't want anybody walking out of here mad going, I can't believe he said that. Is a verbal profession important? Absolutely. Absolutely. We ask people to profess their knowledge uh, or acknowledge their faith in Christ in all different ways. Maybe you've been to a church at the end, they're like, would you just raise your hand if you want to come to know Jesus as your Savior? And have people do that. Or they have people walk the aisle. Or baptism. Baptism is a profession of faith in front of your family and your friends. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 says, Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge him before the Father in heaven. And then it says, But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So obviously Jesus expects us to publicly acknowledge him and identify him, ourselves as his followers. Then look what Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, and 10. One of the ones that, that we use if you've ever been in a place where you are sharing your faith and trying to, to explain to people. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. We see these words here. If we confess with our mouth what has happened in our hearts, we will be saved. But what are we confessing with our mouth? That Jesus is Lord. And if our hearts actually truly believe that, that's, that's where this transformation begins to take place. Jesus has made us new. He's bought us with his blood. He is Lord, which makes me a slave, makes me a servant. And it is possible to say Jesus is the Lord with this intellectual knowledge because I have seen it happen many a times. I can scare the hell out of people. And I mean that in a figurative way. I can talk so poorly about hell and all that and just say, you need to pray this prayer right now. Say, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Okay, good. All right, let's leave them a go and we'll go on to the next person. We have to be very careful with that. Because it's not just a, a, a let's scare them to death. Let's help them understand how bad hell is and how amazing God's grace and love and mercy is. And so we begin to, to work on that, and, he, and we have to understand, because if it's just an intellectual thing, and we go and we say, hey, well, we did all this cool stuff after we came up to this intellectual thought, what are the words he says in Matthew chapter 27, verse, or, sorry, verse 7? Sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. How, how does it come to that place? Well, it's because he called us into a relationship. And just like in any relationship, marriage relationship, if you are not connecting, you're not going to know each other. This Christian life is fundamentally about a relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. And like I said, if you're only getting together with him once a month for one hour, that's not going to be a very deep relationship. If a relationship at all. And so we begin to look at this and we begin to understand that when he knows us and we know him, we walk with him, we do life with him, we follow him, and it continues to change us. I can guarantee you, if you would have known me 20 plus years ago, Christine and I will be celebrating 21 years a month from tomorrow, 
But if you would have known me 20 plus years ago, I wouldn't be the same as I am today. And the reason why is because we have rubbed off on each other. I didn't ever care about cleaning anything up when she first met me. Now I'm the one like, pick it up, get, hey kids, what are you doing? I'm out there barking out, turning off lights, you know, doing all the things that after 20 years, you just start to rub off on each other. And you begin to see those changes take place. Well, guess what? After 30 years of being a Christian, has Jesus rubbed off on me and changed me and worked on me and done those things? I sure hope so. I sure hope I can look back and say I'm different than I was when I was in junior high and I prayed that prayer and I confessed him as Lord. And he began to change me at that moment. Now, did everything happen instantaneously? No, I wish it would have. But it has happened over 30 years of continual progress where he is changing me. And because he is changing me, because I'm a different person because of it, it has resulted in me being willingly and joyfully submissive and obedient. That's the result. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, really tells basically the same thing as he's challenging the church to do this. This is what he says. I'm just going to highlight a couple of the verses. Verse 14 in James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. James 2.17 says, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. And then jump down to verse 20, senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Those verses say that faith without works is dead and useless. Now, once again, please know this, our works do not save us. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 make that very clear. But sometimes we forget about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when it says, We were saved for good works through Christ Jesus, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why were we saved? Was it just so we could get out of hell, or was it because God wants the glory and He wants the honor and He wants the praise from our lives? He wants to see the fruit, He wants to see the change. See, The Christian life is more than just saying the right words. It is loving Jesus, living with Jesus, and as a result, we do the right things. That's the way it all comes down. Real faith, real relationship with Jesus, it is transforming, and there will be fruit as evidence because of it. Today, I want to ask you a question. What does your fruit look like? How obedient, how submissive are we being? Not in our own power, but because of the power of Christ is in us, changing us, and changing us from our own selfish ways. That's a question I think we really have to understand because we can get so caught up in the religion thing that we forget about the relationship thing. A real relationship. And then Jesus wraps up both sermons, both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, with the same parable. And he says this in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. If you go back over to the parable in Luke, he actually says that wise man digs down under the sand to find the rock. So it took time and it took effort. He didn't just throw some house up. He did that. And then it says this in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 7. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the wind blew and pounded that house, and guess what happened? It collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So the first part, he says, don't just say it, do it. The second part, he says, don't just hear it, do it. 
Don't just hear it, do it. Notice both the wise and the foolish hear Jesus' words. They both hear it, but it's not enough just to hear them. You have to put it into practice. You can't just hear it, you have to do it. Let's just do this, for instance. You go to the mechanic. You're like, man, I keep hitting, putting my foot on the brake, and it just makes this horrible grinding sound. And it's like, what should I do? And he's like, well, it sounds like you need some new rotors and some new brake pads. You're like, okay. You get in the car, you put it in reverse, and you drive off. <laughs> Nothing's going to change just because you heard what was supposed to happen. You actually have to do it. Oil changes, same way. Man, there's all kinds of smoke pouring out. It's got all kinds of rattle going. Well, you need to put some oil in that sucker. That's the reason why. Okay. It's not going to do us any good if you go to an expert in that particular field and you say, that sounds great, but then you don't do anything about it. My biggest frustration, this is just something I'm going to speak out there because I'm always honest and real and sometimes too honest and too real. My biggest frustration is when somebody comes up to me after a service and they say, Matt, that was a great message. And I say, thanks. What are you going to do about it? They're like, nothing. I mean, nobody's actually said nothing, but their lives have said nothing. And the reality that we live in is, is we do that every day. People in churches everywhere, every day. They, they go in, they walk in, and they pray, and they say, hey, God, I want you to change me, just not like that. That's how we respond to God. We respond to Him as He's speaking to us in these certain ways. There's very little of us that we can just hear and not put it into practice. As a matter of fact, Going back to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, it says, But be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We can be deceived. We can be deceived in believing we have some relationship with God when we don't. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourself, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone who's looking at his own face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. If you just listen and don't do, you're deceiving yourselves. We can't just assume that we've built our house on the rock. We have to actually do something about building our house on the rock. We can't just know that the rock exists, that rock being Christ, by the way. We can't just know that the rock is down there somewhere. We have to dig down to it. We have to experience it. We have to build our house on it. And that's what he's saying here. He didn't say try harder because he's already done the work. He says, what I want you to do is joyfully respond to the salvation that you already have. That's what we're being built upon. So what I want you to do is walk out of here with this. It's about a relationship with Jesus. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, knowing about him isn't good enough. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, what does it look like? I can't answer that for you. I can't say, here's where your relationship is. Let's draw this out. But I think you can look and say, here's where my fruit is. Here's where my fruit's not. Here's where I'm being obedient. Here's where I'm taking over the control of my life. Where is it that we're getting caught up? How can God continue to move us closer to him? How can in this relationship we see that obedience as a fruit and the proof of the love? See, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. John 14, 21 says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, 23 says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
See, love for Jesus isn't just some warm, fuzzy feeling that we get because the song was really good this morning. The love that we have for Jesus is a relationship, and it results in us doing what he commands. Is there going to be times when you're going to be at odds with him? Absolutely. Is there times that I'm going to be at odds with my wife? Ask her. There's going to be times we're doing this and we're not intersecting. But then you, what do you do? You either sit down, you have the conversation and say, where are we missing? Or you keep going like that and the relationship gets weaker. Where are you missing? Where are we missing at in this? And in, it really does come down to a choice. We get to decide things every day. We get to decide what we wear. We get to decide what we eat. We get to decide what we do. We get to do bigger decisions like what am I going to do after high school? Who am I going to marry? What kind of car am I going to drive? Where am I going to live? What kind of job I have? Those are all things that we talk about, we pray about. We say, God, I just don't even know what to do next. But the biggest decision that you'll ever make in your entire life is how will you decide if Jesus is the Lord of your life or not? And how will you respond to that question? The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the plain, and hopefully every good sermon you've ever heard ends with a question, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? So that's my question for you today. What are you going to do now? Will you stand and proclaim Jesus as Lord, maybe for the first time? Will you stand and say, you know what, I haven't been baptized, and now's the time I need to do it. Or when I did get baptized, it was my parents' decision, and now it's time for me to make a decision to make that decision known to my friends. Will you pray with me? What, God, what uh, Jerome read as he prayed that, that, that prayer that, that Jesus taught us. Will you pray, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've given us our provisions. We ask you to do it just one more day. We've asked you to, for you to, to forgive us our debts once again, the times that we don't obey, the times that we don't submit. Will you do that for us, God? Will you take us in that way? And will you not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the one who's trying to deceive us? It's a real tough, hard question, and I pray today's the day that you hear it, and not just hear it, but respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you do, and, and I need to stand before you and before everybody in this congregation and I need to confess where I fail. Where I choose to be the Lord of my own life. Far too often. I, I'd like to say I have the faith. And I'd like to say I put that faith into action like we saw even up front with Moses. And, and with Noah. And with Abraham. And, and with Jacob. And, and with Rahab. And with Gideon. All of these amazing stories that we see people just take that step of faith. And God, I know that step is there. But so often... I just am afraid to take it because I think I need to be in control. God, I want to give you the control even this morning. I want you to grow me in the places where I am weak, and I want you to strengthen me even more in the places that I'm strong. I want you to be the one that is in control. I want to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, not just with my mouth, but also with my actions. I want people to see it, not for my glory, not to say, oh, look what Matt's doing, but instead to see what you are doing in me and through me and even in spite of me. Even when somebody asks, how are you normal? We can say it's all because of God and what he's doing in my life. God, may you be praised this morning. If there's anybody in here who just needs to take that step, 
I pray today is the day to do it, to proclaim you as Lord, not just with their mouth, but to back it up with action. We pray it in your name. Amen.